It is a land of tremendous beauty. High, soaring mountains and deep, rich valleys. And it's here, in this land, John prepares the way for light to heal darkness. A young virgin carries a promise toward Bethlehem, where shepherds, scholars, and angels wonder at the bright star born in a humble cave. Now, together, we welcome you into our hearts. Light our lives with the power of hope, peace, joy, and love undimmed by centuries and manifest in this one truth. Christ is coming. Well, I want to welcome you again to First Methodist Mansfield. My name is David. I serve as one of the pastors here. And especially if you're a first-time guest in any of our worship venues today, uh, delighted to have you. If we can serve or bless you in any way, answer any questions, we'd love for you to stop by our connecting point right after the service. This is the second week in the season of Advent. And since you may not know what that word means, I want to tell you a little bit about that. There are two major seasons in the Christian calendar, uh, the season of Lent and the season of Advent. Lent is the six weeks leading up to the celebration of Easter, and Advent is the four weeks leading up to the celebration of Christmas. And both of those seasons in the Christian calendar are focused on the task of preparing for the celebration that comes at the end of those weeks. So during the season of Lent, we prepare to celebrate Easter, which, which comes at the end of, of those gathering of weeks, and that's what we're doing in Advent. We're preparing for the celebration of Christmas. Now, the theme of preparation should be familiar to you. I'm guessing that maybe you did some preparation this weekend. Maybe you got the tree up. Maybe you got some lights on the house. Maybe you did some work on the holiday shopping list. Maybe you didn't, and I just reminded you about that, and now you're feeling really stressed out. So just set that aside for a moment. We, we do lots of preparations uh, in this season as we move towards Christmas, and those are all good things, but the preparation that we're talking about is a little bit different than that. We are preparing ourselves to celebrate Jesus coming into the world, what some might call the reason for the season, a moment that we believe changed everything. It changed the entire scope of human history when Jesus came and entered our world as a sign of God's love and God's grace. That's what we're preparing for, to celebrate that. The, the, the giving of Jesus to the world. And we're also preparing ourselves in this season by considering where in our lives, where in our hearts, we still need Jesus to come. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that today. But at the end of this preparation time, the season of Advent, uh, it culminates for us in Christmas Eve. And we have eight opportunities for you to be a part of a Christmas Eve service you can see all of our special services at christmasinmansfield.org. You can pick the service that works best for you. But before I dive in today, I want to tell you about uh, a special offering that we're going to receive on Christmas Eve and the important ministry that it's going to go to support. And to do that, uh, I want to show you a video that highlights something I've been doing uh, in recent months to prepare uh, to participate in that blessing. So let's, let's see that video real quick. Thank you. 
My day's work won't begin for a few hours. But there is something I need to do first. Over the last several years, I have run over a thousand miles. Not for myself or any benefit I might receive, but for hope. I run to invite those who care about me to care about boys and girls living in a very different world from mine. Kids who need help. Kids who see hope as a distant dream. It's about heroes, which is so. My hero Zoe, that helped me, cares for me as my, my own mother, as my own parents. And I was hopeless, and Zoe came, and now I'm surviving, I have a hope. And the last one says Jeremiah 29:11. Okay, with Zoe, she got a goat, she runs business, can make money. Her next goal is to buy a car. Every dollar you give supports Zoe Ministry an organization moving children from a life of begging for a handout to a life where they can sustain themselves and fulfill their own dreams of contributing to their community. Every dollar is another step towards setting those dreams free. Would you help me bring hope? It's why I got out of bed this morning and why I'm running today. Hope changes everything. If you'd like to support Miles for Hope, please visit hoperunners.org. Next Sunday, uh, at this time, uh, as I'm preaching now, I will will be suffering. Uh, I'll be running uh, 26.2 miles next week in the Dallas uh, Marathon. I'll I'll be sharing the the third message in this series on Saturday night, and you'll hear it uh, via video uh, next weekend. And so I may be smiling during the message, but at that moment I will not be smiling uh, in the midst of that that run. It'll be a day of suffering. Uh, Two months later uh, from today, about, about that length of time, I'll be in Rwanda to meet some of these kids that we have been supporting. I'm doing both of those things. Because I think of all the things that we do as a church family, we do some incredibly significant and wonderful things, but I'm not sure anything is more significant than this work of of setting free the dreams of of these kids. And so if you want to join us in that, if you want to bring hope, uh, you can give an electronic gift at the website there that was in the video, but you can also uh, bring a gift for Christmas Eve. 100% of our offering will go to support Zoe and the kids that we are sponsoring there uh, and helping to find hope. Uh, in their life. Uh, if you were here during the season of Lent this last spring, you know that we did a series called Discovering the Holy Land. Mike and I had just returned from a trip there, and, and we took you during those six weeks to those places that corresponded to that portion of the gospel story. We're doing part two of that series uh, in the season of Advent here, where we're doing Christmas in the Holy Land. And again, we're taking you to those places in the Holy Land which correspond to Uh, those moments in the Christmas story. And so today, uh, first I want to show you this this map that gives you a sense of the Holy Land and what we're looking at. Uh, You see there in the north the the town of Nazareth. That's where I'm going to take you to today. Last week, if you heard the first message in this series from either from Mike or I, we were in Jerusalem. Uh, And we were there to to hear the announcement that the angel gave to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. Remember, John was the one who came to prepare the way for the Messiah. 
Messiah for Jesus. Uh, Next week, I will take you to the shepherd's fields in Bethlehem, the place where the shepherds first heard the news that the Messiah had been born. And in the final week of this series, we'll go to the church and the nativity in Bethlehem, which marks the birthplace of Jesus. But, but in, the, in the Christmas story, the, the place that the portion that corresponds to Nazareth is something that is often referred to as the Annunciation or the announcement that Mary received from the angel Gabriel that she was going to have a son. So I want to read to you first that moment from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, and then I want to take you to Nazareth and what we find there. So let me begin Luke 1, beginning with verse 26. It says this, In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. Now remember, Elizabeth was the mother of John the Baptist. So uh, Luke is situating this story for us according to what we had just read about, about Zachariah and Elizabeth hearing the news that they were going to have a son named John. Uh, Gabriel was sent to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, who was a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great, which is pretty good news, right? They're going to have a son. Not only going to have a son, he's going to be pretty cool, too. He's going to be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. This is sounding more impressive, right? Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Oh, my gosh, this is going to be a really important guy. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. This is amazing news that the angel is bringing to Mary. And this is how she responds. How will this be since I am a virgin? In other words, I'm a young girl, but I kind of know how things work around here. And I'm not sure this is going to work out the way you think because there's certain things that have to be done. You're following this, right? She's a little confused. Like, how is that going to happen? And the angel answered by saying, The Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. Now, if any of us were in the position of Mary, we would probably have a few more questions, right? Like, okay, could you review that for me again? Exactly how is this going to happen that I'm going to have this son? But listen to how Mary responds. She says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. So let me take you to one of my favorite spots that we visit in the Holy Land. This is the Church of the Annunciation, and I want to show you first uh, just what this structure looks like. I want you to get a sense of how large it is. This structure was completed and opened in 1969, built by the Roman Catholic Church, although there have been churches at this particular site in Nazareth since the 4th century uh, when Emperor Constantine declared Christianity the religion of the Roman Empire. The next picture that you're going to see gives you a, a picture of the courtyard that surrounds this massive church, and you see there from different 
different parts of the world artistic expressions of Mary and her son Jesus. This is something you see throughout the Holy Land, all these different places that you visit, you will see scriptures or pieces of art that reflect the different cultural perspectives of people all around the world. It's a reminder to you that you are coming to a place where people from all over the world have come to remember the life of Jesus. As you enter on the first floor of this structure, this is, the, this is what you see there. The next picture gives you a sense of that. And in the back of it, you're gonna see some small altars there where you can go and pray. You see, if I can draw your attention to the top, you see a hole in the roof, which reveals the second floor. I'll show you that in more detail in just a moment. And then there is this uh, portion of the first floor that actually goes down, and there's something there off to your left. So the next picture shows you what that is. This is called the Grotto of the Annunciation. And what you realize as you enter into the first floor here is that this structure, this entire church, is built on top of the, the ruins from first century Nazareth. So the places where the residents of that time lived, this is one of the caves that, that, that archaeologists have found there, and this is the cave that is thought to be the home of Mary. This is the sacred site on, on which this church is built. So you come around this circle and down that line, and the next picture shows you what you see inside, a very simple altar there. There are steps leading out the back. We'll talk about that in just a moment. And then that tile floor that's obviously been added. That is not first century, just so you know. As you go up to the second floor of this facility, you see the massive sanctuary space that is in this next picture. While we were there, uh, there was a service going on there in the back. You see that, that massive piece of art and then the dome, which is situated just above that hole in the floor, looking down to the Grotto of the Annunciation. And then around the uh, edges of this main sanctuary space. Go to that next picture. Again, you see artistic renderings of Mary and her son Jesus from different parts of the world. The next picture shows you the one from uh, America. There, there, that's, that's the United States one uh, there on your right. And then as you exit this facility and you come around back to the first floor, what you see is the rest of the caves that were the first century homes of the residents there in Nazareth. So this actually comes into that first floor area that the, where the bars are, that's where the grotto is. Again, what, what is thought to be the home of Mary. This entire structure built on top of what was first century Nazareth. Now, last week we were in Jerusalem, and you probably know that Jerusalem was a very significant city for the Jewish people. It was the place where the temple was, the place where people would come to bring their offerings. And we were in Jerusalem because Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, was a priest in Jerusalem. He had a really significant job in a very significant city. But Nazareth was nothing like Jerusalem. Nazareth was a very small village where perhaps a few hundred people lived in these caves that were made out of the soft limestone that you find there in the northern portion of Israel. It was a, a collection of poor families who lived in a community so small you wouldn't have found it on a map. It's like a lot of those small towns that you might pass through if you took a major highway out of DFW and if you didn't blink, you would see some places that you didn't even know existed because they are, they're 
so small. That was where Mary lived out her days. In the Gospel of John, the the first chapter, we get a sense of how insignificant this place was when when Philip comes to Nathanael to tell him that they have found Jesus, the one who is uh, the, the Messiah, the one of whom Moses wrote about in the law and the prophets. This is how Nathanael responded when they said it was Jesus of Nazareth. He said, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? And this was the home of Mary. This is where she lived out her days in that very, very humble, humble, uh, humble home. Uh, again, I, know, I pointed out to you the stairs that were coming out of the back of the cave. That was the expansion plan for these very small dwelling places where these people lived as they would build some sort of structure on the top portion and then stairs coming out of the cave where, where they could make it to that, that second story level. Pastor Adam Hamilton in his book, The Journey, talks about Nazareth in this way. He says, the name of this tiny village of Nazareth tells us something about the people living there and offers a clue to the identity of the child that Mary would bear. Nazareth may come from the Hebrew word netzer, which means branch or shoot. Sometimes when a tree is chopped down, a shoot will grow from the stump, allowing a new tree to spring up where the old one has died. That shoot or branch in Hebrew is called a netzer. Now, you may wonder, what in the world does that have to do with Jesus and Christmas? And I'm not sure I understand that. Like if a friend came to you and said, we're having a baby and we've decided to name him Branch. Like, he would smile and nod, but I know what you'd be thinking. Like, what? That's kind of weird. Like, leaf or grass? Don't name your kid that. It just seems kind of weird. So what, what is the significance of this word branch? Why would these people have named their town branch or shoot or leaf? What, what, is, what exactly does that mean? And to explain that to you, I would remind you that the reason that the longing was so strong for first century Jews for a savior to come and to set the world right again is that hundreds of years earlier, everything had gone so horribly wrong. In the 8th century BC, the Assyrians had come into the northern portion of of the kingdom of Israel and they had overrun the Jewish leadership. 150 years later, the Babylonians would come into the southern portion of the kingdom and at that point, it would bring an end to Jewish leadership in the land of God's promise. And so for hundreds of years... These people had lived under occupied rule as the Babylonians gave way to the Persians and the Persians gave way to the Greeks and several, different, uh, several other empires came in and ruled over them. Uh, eventually, they fell into the hands of the Romans. And for hundreds of years, they had lived under occupied rule in the land that God had promised them, in the place that they had been led to by the prophet Moses, in that place where, where God had, had given them, had blessed them with the In that place, they they had been cut off and isolated. They had not been able to control their own destiny. And they had longed for someone to come and to set the world right again because there was something wrong about, about the situation that they found themselves in. And all they had to hold on to was the promise that at some point in our history, God is going to intervene. And God is going to set the world right again. 
Isaiah was one of those prophets who, who pointed to what was going to eventually happen one day. In Isaiah chapter 9, he says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Hundreds of years before Jesus' birth, before he came, Isaiah had, wrote, had written these words. And then we turn over to Isaiah 11. Listen to what, how Isaiah describes the coming Messiah in this section of, of his prophecy. He says, a shoot, or a netzer, will come up from the stump of Jesse. Now remember, Jesse was the father of David. David was the best king in the history of Israel. So from the line of David, from the house of Jesse, from the stump that has been cut off, a new shoot, a new branch will come. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness, finally righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. In other words, from this place of pain and suffering that we have experienced, from the stump where life used to flourish, in the land where we used to have control, where we used to have abundance, in this place of suffering and longing and pain, at some point a new branch will begin to grow. And God by his grace and love, will begin to set the world right again through the branch who will come to set us back in, as we should be in the land of God's promise. Now, if you uh, are to go to the Holy Land one day, and I'd love to take you there at some point. We're going again at February, in February 2016, if you want to go. Would, again, would love to take you there. One of the things that you will come back with, I just guarantee you will make your way uh, back here with, is an olive carving, an olive wood carving. The reason is because they're everywhere. I mean, everywhere you go, you, you see these. And I want to I show you a few pictures. The first picture here is from a factory that we visited. This is actually in Bethlehem. This was a Palestinian shop in Bethlehem. And you see there the olive wood branches. Uh, they're waiting to be prepared. And there are a few workers there who are cutting them down to a manageable size for the carvings that they make from, from these branches. You see here many of the figures that will make their way into those nativity sets. And again, in the background, you see all of these branches that are being prepared for these carvings. This next picture is one that just caught my eye as we were in the shop. And you just get a sense of the craftsmanship that is involved in, in these pieces. You see there the face of Jesus. And of course, I, I had to bring something home for my wife. And so I want to show you what I, what I brought to her. This is the backside of it. You see it right here um, of what I, what I brought back to her. And you, you flip that around and the carving of the nativity is inside. And again, you just get a sense of how beautiful these, these pieces are and how much work went into to crafting them. But again, you see these everywhere you go in Jerusalem and Bethlehem and Nazareth around the Sea of Galilee. Everywhere you go, you can find these olive wood carvings to buy as a souvenir from your trip. And I couldn't help but wonder, where does all the wood come from? 
Like while you're in Israel, there is certainly some vegetation, but not in the abundance that you would expect to find for all of these carvings that you see. And it kind of leaves you wondering, well, where, where do they find all of, this, all of this wood? Well, let me show you where it comes from. It comes from trees that look like this. This is an olive tree. This is actually an olive tree in Jerusalem uh, or right outside the old city walls of Jerusalem. At the base of the Mount of Olives, there is a garden known as the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane means olive press. It was the place where people would come out of the city to press olives there in, in that garden. It was also the place where Jesus came on the night that he was arrested to, to prepare himself and to pray for what was going to come next. That's why it's a place that, that we remember, the Garden of Gethsemane. And this olive tree is actually over a thousand years old. In fact, some scientists believe that this tree dates back to the time of Jesus, meaning that this tree was there on that night when Jesus came to pray and to prepare himself for what was going to come next. As you can tell, olive trees do not grow up. They just grow out. They just get more and more fat. The trunks get larger and larger and expand. And those trunks hold all the nutrients that are necessary for the branches that sprout out from this trunk. You see there in the front a few of very young branches that have grown out of this very, very old tree. It's one of the miraculous things about the olive tree is that these branches continue to flourish and grow. And so amazingly enough, all of the wood that you see from these carvings that you can purchase as a souvenir from your trip to the Holy Land, all of, the, of the, these branches, this wood, are harvested from trees that continue to flourish and grow despite the branches that have been removed. It's one of the amazing things about the olive tree, its ability to continually regenerate life, new branches from the stumps of branches that have been removed, new shoots, new branches are able to grow. And it's for that reason that the prophets use this imagery. So when people heard that the Messiah would come, that the Messiah would be like a new branch that grows from the stump, from that place where that, that, that we know as a place of pain and suffering and death, from that place a new branch will grow, new life will spring forth, something is going to come and it's going to come out of that place of suffering and loss and pain just like the olive tree that continually generates new life in those places where it has been so severely damaged. Now, what in the world does that have to do with Advent and preparation and Christmas and everything that this season is about? Uh, today at 2 p.m. here in our chapel, we're going to have a service that we have every year, every December, called our Remembrance Service. And I'm, uh, I'm excited that uh, today I'll get the chance to preach at that service as well. The service of remembrance that we have each, each year, the invitation of that service is for anyone who has lost a loved one, whether it's in the last year or in previous years, who wants to especially remember them during the Christmas season and is invited to come. And their name is read at the end of that service. A candle is lit as we remember those people who have, who, who have enriched our life, who we treasure, and who we dearly, dearly love. It's a reminder to us that in a season that we often describe as a season of joy, there are a whole host of emotions that we experience at Christmas. 
we remember those who we have lost, those who we have loved, who have made us who we are today, who have blessed us in tremendous ways. We think about the relationships that we have in our life today, some which may be flourishing and some which may have taken a different direction. We think about Christmas's past. We think about the dreams that we have for our lives, some dreams that we've seen fulfilled and some that have gone unrealized or some that we have experienced some sort of a delay. We look at the stumps in our life, those places where life used to flourish, and we cannot help but wonder if anything good or beautiful can come from that place again. And we return to this story, the story of a branch growing out of a stump, of new life springing forth from what was previously thought to be a dead end. God showing up and working in a place where no one assumed anything good could come from. Which to me raises this question. Do you have a place in your life like that today? Is there a place in your life that you would look at, a place where, where life used to flourish, where, where things previously were headed, in, at least from your perspective, in the right direction, that for some reason it's taken a wrong turn? Do you have a place in your life today where this Christmas you need to ask Jesus to come, to bring healing, to bring grace, to bring peace, to bring reconciliation, to bring forgiveness, to bring courage? Is there a place in your life where if you took the time to think about it, you would say, this is the place where I need Jesus to come this Christmas. This is the need that I have in my life this day. This is, this is, this is the hurt that, that I need him to, to bind up. This is the person in my life that I'm worried about this Christmas. This is, this is my mom or my dad or a grandparent who is, who is physically declining, and I'm watching that every single day. There's this hurt that I have in my life because of a relationship that took a wrong term, and, 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 and this Christmas, I really need Jesus to come there and do there what only, what only he can do. Or maybe for some of us, we would say, that there is something in my life that shouldn't be there, and I know it. And I know it's hurting me, and I know it's stealing life from me, and I just need Jesus to come and forgive me and help me choose a different path for my life. Is there a place where you need Jesus to come? Because the good news of Christmas is this, that if you invite him in, Jesus will come even in those places where, where we feel like there's a dead end, where we may assume that nothing good can come from. The good news of the story is that a new branch can grow. New life can be generated. That when we invite him, Jesus will come. One of the convictions of our life together is that every single person matters to God. That means people who live in significant places with significant roles like Zechariah and people who live in places like Nazareth, a young teenage girl like, like Mary. People who have the story figured out, who know what this is about, or people who may be here for the first time wondering, well, what is Advent? I'm not sure what that is. Every single 
person matters to God and every single person is worthy of God's grace. Regardless of where you were yesterday or last week, what what your life has been like up until this point, every single person is worthy of God's grace, which means wherever you are today, if you invite him in, Jesus will come. That is the good news of Christmas. And in that place, Jesus can do what no one else can do. So in the midst of a busy season of preparation and longing and anticipation, I want to invite you to ask yourself this question. Where do I need Jesus to come and bless me and heal me, forgive me, restore me this Christmas? Let's pray. Loving God, I pray today for each person that is here. And I most especially pray, Lord, that you would give them courage. That you would help them, Lord, to keep going and not give up. We all know, Lord, how how powerful that temptation can become in our life to look at those places that we would see as a dead end, the stumps of our life where life used to flourish, but, but it doesn't flourish anymore. And to simply assume that nothing good, nothing beautiful can ever come from there again. But I pray, Lord, that as we, as we move through this season, as we turn our attention to this story, that you would remind us that hope and peace and grace, things that may seem like a distant dream, they can be a reality because of your love and your presence at work in our life. Help us to feel that this day. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.